This is Dr. Karen, and you're listening to the DeFacto Leaders Podcast on the Bee Podcast Network, where I help pediatric therapists and educators become better leaders so they can make a bigger impact with their services. With over 15 years of experience supporting school-age kids with diverse learning needs, I'll share up-to-date evidence-based practices, my own experiences, and guest interviews designed to help clinicians, teachers, and aspiring school leaders feel more confident in the way they serve their students and clients. I'll cover a range of topics designed to help you support students' emotional and academic growth and set kids up for success in adulthood, including how to support language, literacy, executive functioning, as well as how to help IEP teams working together to support kids across the day. Whether you want to learn more effective strategies for your therapy sessions or classroom, be a more influential leader on your team, or find creative ways to use your skills to advance in your career, I've got you covered. Hey there, it's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 142 of the DeFacto Leaders Podcast on the B Podcast Network. Today I'm bringing you a solo episode and I am discussing a question that I get all the time from clinicians in different contexts, which is the question of which skills should I focus on in therapy? And I'm going to make the case today for why we should think about what the adults need when we answer this question and not just think about the kids. This is the way that I think about how I sequence the curriculum that I design for clinicians in my programs such as Language Therapy Advanced Foundations or the School of Clinical Leadership. And it's also how I think about what program I might direct someone to if they're interested in learning more from me, depending on where they are and what their unique situation is. You can learn more about my programs on my websites. The one that is specific to speech pathology is drkarenspeech.com. And my website that is focused on leadership and executive functioning and helping teams work together is drkarendudekbrannon.com. Before I get started, I wanted to share that this is actually a difficult episode for me to record because... It is really a compilation of so many things that I've thought about over the last five to six years as I've thought about how to expand my programs and services, as well as how I've thought about how I structure the content even for this podcast. So there is actually a blog post that is a written version of this episode that I wrote before recording this, just so I could get my thoughts together. And and so this episode is really the audio version of that post, and I will be linking to that post in the show notes. So definitely check that out if you would like a written version of this content. I'll also be mentioning different programs and other De Facto Leaders podcast episodes as I discuss this topic. So be sure to check the show notes for all of the things that I will be mentioning in this episode. One of the most common questions I get from clinicians who work with school-age kids is about scope and sequence of therapy. 
How do I make time to address all these skills my students need? How can I help my students generalize skills from one setting to another? How can I help the other people on my team value and understand my specific discipline? I started off as an SLP, which means I was thinking about these questions within the context of the SLP's role in language and literacy intervention. But as I expanded to special education leadership and started looking at this in the context of the entire school team, I found that many other clinical disciplines and teachers from different content areas are all asking these same questions in some way. There are endless debates about what is and isn't evidence-based, what is developmentally appropriate and reasonable to expect from students, and how we should design programs and services. Many of these questions are centered around the students, and they should be to some extent, but not at the expense of the adults. First, it's helpful to talk about the concept of adequate services versus optimal services. School therapists I've interacted with face moral dilemmas on a daily basis because they're legally mandated to provide services that are educationally relevant. The goal of therapy is not to optimize functioning, but rather to provide a reasonable amount of intervention to ensure access to the curriculum. This can be challenging because many parents, as well as some outside therapists and medical professionals, don't understand school eligibility guidelines. This means school therapists and administrators are put in the difficult position of having to explain to families why their job isn't to provide the best services, it's to provide good enough services. And this is not because they're trying to be stingy, it's because they are working in a publicly funded system and there have to be really clear guidelines about what is and isn't covered. Now, typically people don't decide to work in the schools with the goal of providing services that are adequate. They want to be life-changing, even if they're not legally required to do it. Yet the fact that they're in the schools means they're given the capacity for adequate services. And whether they're actually allowed the bandwidth to be adequate is up for debate. And this is where things start to get confusing. When we're talking about cognitive development and prerequisite skills, how much is reasonable to expect from people working in the schools? Teachers, for example, need to have an in-depth grasp on scope and sequence of the curriculum. Therefore, it makes sense for teachers to spend a fair amount of time developing an in-depth understanding of curricular expectations and alignment. But this results in criticism and claims that schools are being cookie cutter and too focused on standards and testing, even though it would be complete chaos if we went too far in the other direction and had no standards. And for the therapists who work in the schools, they not only have to have competency in their clinical discipline and diagnostic procedures, but they also need to establish an understanding of the curriculum to make sure their services are educationally relevant. Now, because clinicians are not initially trained to be experts in K-12 scope and sequence to the extent that the teachers are, this is a huge learning curve for therapists first entering the schools. I remember how I felt each time I'd attend a seminar during my first few years in the schools, particularly the time I first attended my state conference. After and during a day of sessions outlining protocols I knew I'd never be able to deliver, I started to feel extremely inadequate because nothing is worse than knowing you have the knowledge and skills to be able to help a student and being told by your colleagues that you're missing a key component of intervention when you go to the seminar, 
but then going to work day after day questioning whether you'll ever be able to live up to those standards that you're hearing about in those conferences and seminars. One of the things that makes intervention particularly difficult for school-based professionals is determining what is the highest priority. And since you can't be optimal, you have to be really clear on how you can make the most of the little time you do have. So one of the things people do to solve this problem is try to determine the root cause of issues students may be having. And that results in lots of, is it the chicken or the egg kind of debates and questioning. The way that I see this coming up in speech pathology, for example, is the question of language versus executive functioning. That is a very common chicken or egg debate that happens in my discipline specifically. So I wanted to dive into that example because I think it can be something that's useful for people who are wondering about this specific question who are working on both language and executive functioning. But I think with other disciplines, there are other debates that are similar, that follow a similar pattern. Most disciplines have one area that is much more difficult to treat than others. For SLPs, that's often language therapy, especially if they're working in the schools. While protocols for other conditions have more prescriptive options, addressing a language issue is highly complex, especially as it pertains to reading and writing. SLPs have a background in brain development, cognition, and language, and because language and cognition are interrelated, this expands their scope even further. Many SLPs who treat patients with traumatic brain injuries do rehab specifically focused on cognitive functioning during daily activities. Therefore, it would also make sense for school SLPs to support students with brain differences who present with executive dysfunction. Now, here's where it gets even more confusing from both a clinical and feasibility standpoint. Language and executive functioning have a bi-directional relationship. This means that building language skills can impact executive functioning and vice versa. I talk about this relationship with my colleague, speech-language pathologist Jill Fay in episode 122 of De Facto Leaders. A significant amount of executive functioning skills are required to comprehend language-based academic tasks like reading and writing, yet strategic thinking, which is part of executive functioning, requires a significant amount of internal dialogue, which is very difficult to engage in without adequate vocabulary or ability to use and understand complex syntax. Complex sentences are loaded with language that indicates cause and effect or temporal information, all of which are essential for future planning. On top of that, many students continue to struggle with reading comprehension without direct work on foundational language skills, even if they're taught comprehension strategies. So one might make the argument then, which I often do, that these underlying language skills are prerequisite to developing strong executive functioning skills. So based on that argument, it seems like it's settled. SLPs should be focusing on their language therapy skills first and foremost, right? Well, it's not that simple. Daily functional tasks like packing a bag or managing your belongings all require executive functioning skills, regulating your emotions, noticing how you're coming across, being able to evaluate your own behavior and performance, and noticing cues in the environment around you also require executive functioning skills. 
And in order to benefit from certain academic and language-based tasks, one needs to be able to self-regulate, inhibit, initiate, and persist through tasks. Again, all of which fall under the umbrella of executive functioning, and all of which affect much more than just language-based academic tasks. So you could also make the argument that focusing on executive functioning is a high priority. In a perfect world, a child who needs both executive functioning therapy and language therapy would get both. And in theory, it could be an SLP providing both of those interventions. If I could magically fix the school staffing shortages and huge caseloads, I'd say SLPs should make both things a priority all at once. But making that happen is a logistical nightmare, especially for clinicians who feel like they're barely getting by. So we have to get a bit more creative in how we solve this. And I wanted to just make a note before I go on. I know that I'm using SLPs as an example here because that is one that I deal with specifically. But when it comes to executive functioning, this is not just about SLPs because other professionals can also address executive functioning very effectively given that they have the skills and training. You do have to be careful with executive functioning because there are many people who have branded themselves as coaching and they really don't have a lot of solid training. I am specifically talking about people who have clinical licenses or teaching licenses. So this would be psychologists, social workers, school counselors, music therapists, occupational therapists, teachers. So people who do have training in learning, in cognition, and they also have training in executive functioning. The tricky part here is that if there are multiple people who potentially could be addressing something, then the bystander effect happens and nobody really knows who's responsible for it. So what I am describing today is a potential solution to make sure that that doesn't happen. Usually when we think about establishing therapy questions, we talk about being client focused. So therefore we ask client focused questions. So for example, when clinicians discuss ways to establish a therapy plan, they focus on what is evidence-based, what an appropriate developmental progression should look like, and what methods of differential diagnosis they're going to use. Our job as clinicians or teachers is to support human beings. So of course we need to make sure that what we're doing is tailored to client or student needs. All of these factors are important, valid, and I use many of them in my decision-making process when I come up with course curriculum and program features for my clinical training programs. But quality research takes time and resources to conduct, meaning clinicians need to also layer their clinical expertise and experience into their decision-making process. There are a number of developmental models and theories, and taking things from theory to implementation leaves a lot open to interpretation. Diagnostic procedures aren't foolproof and are often time-consuming. Many times it's difficult to get a complete picture of a client's profile based on the time and resources we have available, partially due to time constraints and sometimes due to the nature of what we're trying to assess. And when you start to get into discussions of the root cause, it gets even more complicated. I think we should be thinking about these things. We shouldn't dismiss them for the sheer reason that they're challenging questions to answer, but there comes a point of diminishing returns where you have to let go of the need to know that you've picked the exact right path. At some point, you have to pick a direction 
that has a reasonable amount of evidence to support it in the interest of moving forward, getting feedback, and adjusting along the way. Many of the problems we're facing in education aren't because the teachers, therapists, and administrators don't know what kids need to succeed. It isn't a question of what the kids need. It's a question of what the adults need to make things happen. And that's why I'm proposing a less conventional way to answer the what should I prioritize in therapy question. I refer to it as the product management approach. Since starting my business back in 2015, I've had the opportunity to learn more about how tech teams work. When tech teams build and maintain a software application, there's an entire team of people who keep it running and updated. Users can submit support requests, and adjacent departments within a company can also submit requests depending on whether the application is customer-facing or whether it's a tool for internal employees. Teams can consist of a handful of technical professionals, web designers, user experience designers, subject matter experts, as well as product managers who manage the backlog of requests and distribute the work among the team. This methodology is used across multiple industries, including the K-12 curriculum market, which I discussed with EdTech leader and former math teacher Meg Hearn in episode 131 of DeFacto Leaders. We discussed how one of the biggest challenges in managing the backlog of requests on a particular product is estimating what projects are the highest priority. As Meg shared in the conversation, Determining what to prioritize is both an art and a science. Some things have to be taken care of right away or the application will break. Other things become a priority because there's a downstream impact. For example, another team will not be able to complete their work unless a certain project is completed. Others may become a priority because of the immediate impact on the experience of a user. For example, if you're creating a tech product for kids in elementary school and they get an influx of students who speak a different language and text needs to be translated, that can be an item on your backlog. Maybe you have another customer that's requesting accessibility features to be added for students with visual impairments. And then you also have a button that's not working and students don't know how to navigate from one screen to another, creating a ton of extra work for teachers using it in their classrooms. These things all sound pretty important, right? So how do we sequence this list of items? Well, let's say you want your product to be available in another language, but it's a huge undertaking. The accessibility feature and the issue with the button are smaller projects that you can complete more quickly, so you prioritize those first. This frees up resources for a bigger project, like the language translation. The rationale is still about the impact on the user, but it's also about feasibility and the team needs. You need to be thoughtful in your process, but if you spend too much time debating, you prevent the projects from happening in a reasonable length of time. And if you focus on too many things at once, your resources get stretched too thin and you compromise the integrity of the work. Someone needs to make the difficult decision of tabling projects that have a solid rationale behind them in the interest of seeing the big picture. Contrast this to what people expect from teachers, school therapists, and administrators. People in education are often expected to make everything a priority all the time without consideration of how they might be able to manage the backlog of projects. They have to say no to people who need help in the interest of saying yes to others, and they have to see the faces of the people their decisions are impacting. While there is an understanding that prioritization is part of the methodology when you're thinking about this from a product management perspective in some kind of an enterprise, 
it's viewed with much more skepticism when it's done in education. When teachers, school therapists, and administrators have to say no, they're accused of focusing too much on test scores, being obsessed with funding, making it all about grades and standards, or not being inclusive and individualized enough for students. These accusations come with good intentions because they're focused on students. But how often do we ask, what is the best scope and sequence for supporting the adults? And this is why we need to start coming up with adult-focused questions. So now I wanted to share my thought process for how we can start doing this. For teachers in core and content areas, they first and foremost need the foundational skills and tools to deliver the curriculum. They also need to bolster that knowledge by learning skills that help them differentiate their instruction, increase accessibility, incorporate principles of universal design, which is where learning about executive functioning can come in. However, I'd argue that it does not make sense to focus on an additional layer of strategy without a solid foundation relating to your specific content area, and not just with knowledge, with materials and curricular resources you have access to. You need the basic things to be able to do your job before you can start talking about additional strategies that are going to enhance it further. You can't add the icing to the cake if the cake doesn't exist. I'd use that same thought process for therapists. And of course, this goes without saying, this could include any of the related service providers, but I'm using SLPs as an example. For many school SLPs, language therapy is the area they feel they're lacking a foundation. So developing a better system for language often creates the mental bandwidth for more ambitious projects. With language intervention, we can make a significant impact by focusing on direct therapy, even with a pullout model. This is not to say that other models are never appropriate or necessary, but students can make significant gains when we focus on improving protocols that can be done in a one-on-one -on -one or small group setting. With executive functioning, things start to get more complicated. This is not a planning for therapy kind of solution. It requires attention to both the programming, the service delivery model, as well as the direct intervention. This means the therapist needs to be extremely clear on how to do the executive functioning intervention in a one-on-one -on -one or small group model, but they also need to think about how they'd be coaching and training other professionals so that they're showing other people how to use those same strategies and create scaffolding outside the therapy room. This means therapists not only have to build their ability to conduct direct therapy sessions, they also have to learn how to document operating procedures and develop scalable clinical protocols to train and mentor others, to function as a consultant, to design and present information and training materials to others, or to coordinate and plan instructional programming. These are all skills required to some extent for any school therapist, regardless of discipline, and regardless of whether they are specifically focusing on executive functioning. But when we think about executive functioning specifically, the need to do this is expanded to a whole new level. And while administrators should be responsible for designing the programming, they can't do their jobs effectively without help from those directly serving students. And I actually had a great conversation about this in episode 138 with experienced principal 
Chris Dodge, where we talk about how some school districts, especially those in rural communities, have to get very resourceful with how they provide services to students. And I should note that I know that this sounds like I'm putting a lot on the therapist's plate, but many therapists find that expanding to other service delivery models actually increases the efficiency and effectiveness of their direct intervention efforts. So in the long run, in some respects, it takes certain work off of their plate because now they've trained other people to do some of the interventions that they have been doing in therapy. And we're not taking away the direct intervention, but we're just enhancing it. And this is why it becomes not just about clinical skills, but leadership skills, which is a much larger undertaking than focusing on your skills within your therapy sessions. That's why for most clinicians who feel overwhelmed with both language and executive functioning, I typically recommend they tackle the language therapy issue first because it's much easier for them to get that off their plate and create more mental bandwidth for the project that's going to take them more effort. This isn't about what the research says. It's about what's going to help you get from point A to point B without burning yourself out. When we have these challenging areas where there's debate and confusion and possibly multiple areas where we can make a rationale for how high priority it is based on what the kids need, often the best solution is to simply focus on what the best scope and sequence would be for the adult learners because this is what's going to help it get completed and get implemented more quickly. Adult learners need scaffolding just as much as kids do. And there are various ways to do that. One is with the professional development model you're using, which is why I advocate so much for team members to be building strategies and clinical protocols that can be shared with others. If people are doing that, then learning can be happening outside the official professional development activities that may happen for school professionals. And I discuss the importance of these professional learning communities with veteran principal Tom Conroy in episode 129 of De Facto Leaders. So professional development model and the format matters, but in the context of this conversation, I'm thinking primarily of how to sequence the information and skills that we want the adults to learn. So obviously I'm thinking about the therapists who need to support the students. My goal is to meet the adult learner where they're at so that they can build and stack one set of skills at a time with the hopes that developing automaticity and some of those foundational clinical skills will enable better performance professionally as we progress. So for example, if a school-based SLP is developing automaticity in their language therapy skills, then that's going to enhance any intervention they do later on for executive functioning. So that's why the sequence I recommend for the majority of school SLPs that I mentor is as follows. First, I recommend that they create a system for language therapy. And that is what I show SLPs how to do in my Language Therapy Advanced Foundation program. Second, I recommend that they create a system for their executive functioning intervention. And first, they can focus on what they do in direct intervention. It's totally fine, even if you have a long-term plan of training other people to first focus on how you would do it in your session and get really clear on your own personal operating procedures. Because if you get clear on documenting that, 
it's going to be easier for you to explain it to someone else. So then once you've established your own personal operating procedures for both language and executive functioning, then you can start creating that plan for adding other service delivery models for the purpose of training other people to ensure that students get the correct support and scaffolding outside your therapy room. And this is exactly what I show you how to do in the School of Clinical Leadership. I do want to mention here that Language Therapy Advanced Foundations was originally designed to help SLPs create a system for language therapy. So that is mostly an SLP program. However, I do welcome other disciplines that work with language and literacy. And then the School of Clinical Leadership is for any of the related service providers who are in an area that could work on executive functioning. So this could be SLPs, psychologists, social workers, school counselors, occupational therapists, etc. Now with this sequence, again, to repeat, create a system for language, create a system for executive functioning that you can do in your direct intervention, and then create a plan for adding other service delivery models. The whole purpose of this is that when we are in those initial steps, we're settling for good enough in the short term in certain high priority areas in the interest of a bigger long-term goal for ourselves clinically and professionally, which is ultimately also going to serve the student's best interest as well. So for example, the language therapy system I teach SLPs and language therapy advanced foundations embeds tools like self-questioning and other metacognitive strategies giving kids the opportunity to build executive functioning skills while doing word study. I know that comprehensive executive functioning intervention involves much more than word study, but I'm taking opportunities to embed that kind of work now, knowing I'm going to cycle back to it in more depth later. The same concept can be applied to other clinical and content areas as well. For example, math curriculum expert Jonathan Regino shared with me that math can build foundational skills that support problem solving. That is what we talk about in our conversation in episode 123 of De Facto Leaders. Again, many of the content areas and the core areas in the curriculum do embed a lot of executive functioning work. So teachers in those core and content areas can get really clear on their specific area and take opportunities to embed executive functioning into that particular area as they are building their skill sets. And once they develop automaticity and they feel really solid, then they can cycle back to additional ways they can enhance it even further. We can make sure that these things are in place by ensuring that teachers get good professional development. For example, my colleague Cassandra Williams, who is a school turnaround and literacy specialist, talked with me in episode 113 of De Facto Leaders about how there are plenty of opportunities to embed work on metacognition into instruction and professional development that is focused on reading, which is so important for any teachers who are focused on this area. Finally, one other example for you, occupational therapists also have the opportunity to embed plenty of work on strategic planning and sequencing as they are working on their own therapy protocols relating to sensory integration and processing as occupational therapist Maud LaRue shared with me in episode 148 of De 
facto leaders, which as I am recording this interview, that episode has not been published yet, but it is going live in February of 2024. So again, to review that framework, because these steps can look slightly different for other clinical areas, as well as for teachers, those steps are first, build your foundation. So that would be content knowledge, discipline, specific clinical protocols or teaching strategies. So that is number one, build your foundation. Number two is enhance your discipline with metacognition and executive functioning support. And again, the step two for SLPs that I gave was for them to develop protocols for working on executive functioning when they are directly with students. And I think that that would be appropriate for the majority of the other therapy disciplines that I mentioned. And then finally, number three is expand your service delivery models and professional partnerships. This is going to vary depending on what your role is. So if you're a teacher, then you might not be the one that's training other people in executive functioning, but you probably want to form partnerships with some of those related service providers so that you can have someone who can support you in your classroom and can be your go-to person that you can utilize if you do need some support in your classroom and can be somebody that you can partner with to support your students. And then if you're the related service provider, it can be flip-flopped. You wanna make sure that you are there as a support for those teachers, as someone who they'd refer to for students who might need evaluations, as well as someone that they can partner with to implement strategies in their classroom. And when I mention all these other service delivery models, a lot of people get overwhelmed, which is completely understandable, but the way that we can think about rolling these things out is by thinking of them as a backlog of projects that we can get through one at a time. As you work through them, you do want to consider what's research-based. You want to make sure that you meet kids where they're at and be in tune with their needs. But when you're going through this process and making decisions about what interventions we want to plan for kids... Sometimes things like research and developmental levels don't give us clear answers. And sometimes the best intervention plan isn't feasible, meaning that it probably really wasn't the best after all. For example, those great researched protocols you hear about that could never be done in a school system, for example. Sometimes it makes the most sense to pick a plan and see it through knowing you'll have all the pieces in place eventually, regardless of how you sequence it. Sometimes it makes sense to say, this is one thing that I know that I can commit to now. I'm going to build this one protocol, and then when I'm done with that, I'm going to move on to a more ambitious project. When we think like that and we're in tune with our own needs, we actually end up serving students more effectively. If we truly want to support kids, we have to be able to make sure that the adults are supported as well. Now I know I shared a lot of information, so be sure to check the show notes for the link to the blog post that is the written version of all this information I just shared with you today, as well as the links to the podcast episodes that I mentioned in this episode. And then finally, if you want to know how to start doing some of these steps, for example, if you're an SLP and you want to have a system for language therapy, 
then check out Language Therapy Advanced Foundations at drkarenspeech.com backslash language therapy. And if you are ready for that next step, if you want to start thinking about executive functioning, both within your direct intervention, as well as how you might tackle that bigger project of thinking bigger about service delivery model and impacting the rest of your team, then check out the School of Clinical Leadership. And this program is for people who are in that related service provider role. So social workers, psychologists, speech pathologists, counselors, occupational therapists, even teachers, because teachers can certainly be that executive functioning go-to person on their team as well, depending on how the team is set up. So to learn more about that program, go to drkarendudekbrennan.com backslash clinical leadership. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you found this episode useful, please share it with your friends and colleagues or leave me a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have a suggestion for a guest or if you're interested in being a guest on the show, send me an email at talktome at drkarenspeech.com. Thank you so much for listening and I will see you next time.